This episode originally aired in 2019. Many tours of Charlottesville, Virginia might start at Thomas Jefferson's famous rotunda on the University of Virginia grounds, or maybe at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's famous home nearby. But that's not where UVA professor Jelaine Schmidt starts hers. For those of you who are local, how many of you know where the slave auction block is? On this tour, Dr. Schmidt is leading a group of Virginia teachers and librarians. Many don't know where the auction block is, but Dr. Schmidt says that's not really a surprise. So it's like what? About one foot by one foot, basically, and it's flush with the sidewalk. You'd walk over it, you know, sure wouldn't see it. The visit to this tiny memorial is an effort to change how slavery and the Confederacy are taught in the state schools. Dr. Schmidt shows the teachers how some histories are prominently displayed and others are erased. And, uh, you know, compared to all these other monuments that you'll see, even if you look across the street, there's a big Monticello plaque. You see that? It's at eye level, about, you know, three feet by three feet, pointing toward Jefferson's home. I mean, this is a statement of public priorities. To Dr. Schmidt, the history of this block helps explain these misplaced priorities. We're across the street from the courthouse. Uh, and this is the courthouse where Jefferson and Madison and Monroe um, alternately, you know, argued cases or met there, you know, had meetings there, you know. So this is a great uh, historic significance locally. Uh, there were also markets here. And in some cases, um, enslaved gardeners would bring their extra produce here if, if they were allowed to travel in, in such ways. Uh, and and other, other free folks, too, and sell their vegetables, right, and this sort of thing. And, of course, other vendors would be here selling wagons, selling mules, selling humans. The educators and the tour guide pause. They take a moment to honor the lives of the people who'd once been trafficked through this spot. Every once in a while, somebody comes along, you can kind of see the tape residue here. And they will put a little, a little label over slaves, and they will put their humans, say, enslaved people were sold here. You know, they weren't slaves. This is not the totality of their lives or their identities. They were fathers and mothers and children and all sorts of things, you know. But, but this is a, a site of a lot of pain. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. On this week's show, how local history tours are reframing old history for a new generation. Later in the show, we'll return to Danville, where a vicious race riot once spurred the creation of a new segregationist constitution. We'll hear how the city is now telling a different story. This is the site of the famous High Street Baptist Church. Martin Luther King spoke here. And when he met here at the church, there were snipers on the roof. But first, back to Charlottesville. After the tour with Dr. Schmidt, we caught up with one of the teachers who stood next to that slave auction block plaque. So the first part of the tour, we went to the very inconspicuous, forgotten kind of plaque in the ground, you literally step on it, um, that marks the slave auction block where they, what's it say? You know, here is where slaves were bought and sold, and that's it. And that was really emotional for me because I was wondering whether or not I had ancestors that could have been bought or sold there. My father's family, as far as I know, which is uh, my African-American side, uh, we're in the Orange area, which isn't too far away um, and is super rural. So if they were going to come to a larger city, kind of makes sense they would come to Charlottesville. Just kind of, I don't know, being in this space and feeling that possible connection to, you know, the blood flowing in my veins that would have flowed in my ancestors' veins. It was only you know, 200 years ago. It's, it's 
just a very brief amount of time in the totality of history that you know people who would become me were being dehumanized in that way, in that spot. It was really affecting. That's Meredith Howard, a public school teacher in Richmond, Virginia. Meredith isn't alone in feeling the weight of Charlottesville's history and a desire to change it for the future. University of Virginia professor Elgin Cleckley is an architect who specializes in what he calls empathetic design. We spoke with him about how his work aims to transform hurtful landscapes into spaces of connection. Say you're an African-American, you walk into that space of Court Square, downtown Charlottesville. This is the civic and political center of the city. You look to the left and you see a statue of General Stonewall Jackson. You look to another left and you see a statue of the Johnny Reb, the Confederate soldier. Behind you is a 1762 colonial courthouse that Jefferson and also Madison and Monroe, all slaveholders, frequented. But also in the 1920s, the KKK met. But then right outside, now you have the John Henry James plaque. Ironic, this morning coming to this actual studio, I thought of John Henry James because the site of where he was lynched is actually right across, not far from here, it's walking distance. He was an African-American salesman. He sold ice cream. He was accused of assaulting a white woman named Julia Hotop here in the city of Charlottesville. Basically, he was intercepted by a mob, and he was taken off the train, strung up from a tree, uh, shot over 75 times. Pieces of his body and clothing were taken as souvenirs. Here I am thinking about how can that transfer into design, how his body, his legacy and memory are now placed in Court Square, the civic and political center of Charlottesville. You can imagine as you're standing there and you're looking at the historical marker, you're reading about his life and legacy, and then you look up and you see the slave market across the street. You look again and you see the Eagle Tavern where Jefferson slaves were sold. And you realize that you're between two large pin oak trees. And in the back of my head, I hear Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit. Over to your left, you see the Johnny Reb Confederate statue. Behind that, you see the Stonewall Jackson statue. You're also processing that we as humans design spaces. And the plaque, then, of John Henry James is setting up an entirely new social space, which is making you think differently. It's also going to create empathy. A couple summers ago, I was at Cape Coast Castle, and I was standing inside the slave dungeon thinking about what it must have been like to be in this space. And that emotion, I truly believe in that space, creates different conversations. How do you teach empathy to your architecture students? How do they respond? Sure. We talk about a concept analysis of empathy, where I teach how to take other perspectives, how to look at other perspectives. And this is a great article by um, Helen Rice and Gordon Craft Todd that gives ideas of empathy. And if it's really straightforward. Let's just take the ledge of empathy. So E is to be aware of your eye contact. M is to watch your musculature. P is to pay attention to your posture. A to note the affect that you're having. T is to focus on your tone of voice. H is to be focused on your hearing and Y is your response. And so students take these skills after understanding and practicing with one another and they put them directly into action. And so you can imagine if you're using those skills from the letters of empathy in a conversation where you want to learn about design with someone who might be very hesitant, imagine an African-American coming to UVA who might be hesitant to come to this space. All of a sudden I can now interview using those skills to create a design that connects and shows empathy because I've understood intentions, circumstances, emotions in a different way. What I also integrate with students is I provide them with an inclusive level of case studies. So these case studies are all across the board. These are artists and architects around the world who are creating empathic design. Such as? We looked at the work of um, Tadashi Kawamata in Toronto, in his Toronto project in 1989. 
We looked at the work of Romare Bearden, the incredible African-American collage artist. We looked at the incredible work of Tiffany Chung that talked about Vietnamese connections in her life and visualized her father's story from the war. The idea is you think deeply about design, how these empathic designers work in the world. I think we have plenty of examples of buildings that do the opposite, where you walk into them and you see that there's no place to actually sit. If you have any sort of different ability, it's incredibly difficult for you to get up and down. You'll see someone carrying someone's baby carriage to get them up a flight of stairs. And I immediately start to think, well, we designed the world. We designed this. Oof. <laughs> There's some moments we need to deeply think about. It's so interesting. You're talking about teaching at the University of Virginia now. You were an undergraduate there and felt somewhat out of place in the world of angles and math and architecture and structure. Right. Well, I was born in a small southern town, Orangeburg, South Carolina. My parents were born there as well. We used to have these beautiful African-American quilts, and I remember sleeping underneath them. They had lots of incredible patches on them. But I found that they were basically an empathy device so that I could lay it out and point at the squares and ask my parents questions. And I would find out history in really interesting ways. L let's say that I was already starting to think as a designer because I realized that this quilt then enabled stories about a really difficult topic about slavery and about the origins of us in South Carolina. If I took that quilt and laid it out, inevitably these patches would be history that happened at different times. And that's basically how I see the world. So imagine coming to UVA as a student. Thomas Jefferson was regarded in basically one message. And it was Mr. Jefferson's university. 100%. Yesterday is a good example. I was walking to meet a student at the back end of the academical village. And the second I hit the bricks, I feel something come through my body. And what I feel is... I think about all of the enslaved who manufactured every brick. And behind the parts of the academical village where you see the gardens, there are these waving serpentine walls, which are now lowered, but they were built at a height to hide the black body. Now their gardens are beautiful, but I walk into them, I see a hog being butchered. I think about what it must have been like day to day in those very spaces. But when I came to UVA, I wanted to know more about the African-American narrative in these spaces, and it simply wasn't spoken of. There were actually enslaved people living on the grounds of the then much smaller University of Virginia. They were serving the students and the faculty. Exactly. But when I had the opportunity to come back, I mostly came back because of the UVA walking tour which is a walking tour for the enslaved African-Americans that I found on my visit when I came here for an interview. It took me about two hours to take the tour. And what was amazing is that I walked around on the tour, someone else would see what I was doing, and we'd start having conversations. And then all of a sudden, I realized that those thoughts, those emotions I was having, when I saw a serpentine wall, how I could feel it in my soul, feeling I get through my feet walking on the bricks, the emotional fact that I get when you look at the design of the academical village where the black body is hidden behind a facade. Blacks and whites have to be in the same space, but Jefferson was a master in hiding the sight of a black body. And you see that when you're standing on the academical village, you see the columns, all the facing rooms where the students would be, the pavilions where the professors were, but behind those spaces were these gardens. And so returning, taking this tour, and then seeing the amazing work that the university citizens, scholars, community members had undertaken, I decided to come back. Because something as simple as people had begun to truly care and truly spend money and human resources to investigate this additional history. Definitely. And I found since I've been back, I didn't expect what happened <laughs> since I've been back. But 
what an incredible time to be here to be part of this work. I think it's incredibly important work. And is there anything better than to help facilitate or to help be a part of this movement of design, spatial justice, thinking about how design can create this new empathic understanding? So when you were tapped to create this memorial to John Henry James, who was brutally lynched, what influenced you in terms of your design? There is this plaque at the traditional old courthouse with the white columns and the statues of Confederate generals. What was moving to you as you began to look for ideas for the way you would build this memorial? My ideas immediately transferred up to the National Mall. When I was in high school, I would spend a lot of time at the Hirshhorn Gallery. It's my favorite places on earth. And I would stand there at the Hirshhorn Gallery and have a lot of the same feelings I would have standing on Jefferson's Academical Village. I would look and I'd see a large axis. It's kind of dedicated to power, but also was supposed to connect to the entire country. And in it, I thought, there's got to be more to this story. And the more investigations of David Ajay, Philip Freelon, and Max Bond's National Museum of African-American History and Culture, also reading a lot from David Ajay's incredible book, Formed, Heft, and Material. The museum itself, and by the way, I do love the term Blacksonian, which is from uh, the New York Times from Still Processing, <laughs> Jenna Wortham. But this idea of how the building itself symbolizes the black body. But then I remember looking up the first time I saw the museum and I was blown away because I saw the ironwork from nearby Charleston, not far from Orangeburg, South Carolina. And that the idea that the slave craft is resembled in this amazing filigree around the building. And then just to be blown away by the building itself. <laughs> Basically the ultimate in empathic architecture it makes you think deeply about the space of the National Mall. When you're in the building, it's incredible in that you look out of a window and all of a sudden you see the Washington Monument. You find out that Martha Washington's slaves actually built the Renwick Castle, which is at another view from this very site. Then you realize as you sit in the contemplation court, you find these incredible old maps that show the old shoreline that went through the mall. Those very locations are where slaves were sold. You can think in the back of your mind about Michelle Obama's speech about living in the White House built by slaves, which you can see right off in the distance. Then all of a sudden you walk outside the front, and you sit on the African-American porch, back to the quilt, imagine the quilts being made on this African-American porch, and you look over in the distance and you see the Capitol with its base built by slaves. The building becomes this new way of telling a story it also becomes a moment for these empathic conversations. You're going to build differently. You're going to think differently. And you're going to connect with other narratives, specifically an African-American one, in a different way. For the first time in Danville recently, the nearby university, Averett University, arranged for students to take bus tours of the African-American historical part of the city and have people explain that history there and then arrange to talk about it. That's it. Imagine those students then go back to their homes, back to their worlds, and now they're sharing that information. That's the opportunity I wanted to design at Court Square here in Charlottesville when looking at John Henry James's life. A colleague of mine uh, sent me a photograph of her two young kids reading the panel. And I just got really emotional thinking, well, it's amazing to be in this space. But imagine those students in Danville, now they're having new conversations. I'm on the south side of that river district. Right off the south main, hit me if you miss it. I'm going to get a bottle, but we probably sip it. Elgin Cleckley is a professor of architecture and design thinking at the University of Virginia. Next, we head over to Danville. Producer Cass Adair got on a trolley to learn what that small city is doing to transform its Confederate legacy. Driving into Danville, Virginia, it's hard to miss the Confederate flags that flutter along the highway. But now, some of Danville's residents want to share a different story of their city. This past October, I joined students and staff from Danville's Averett University 
as we explore Danville's rich African-American history. Hello, everybody. I'm Carice Luck Brimmer with History United, and I'm your tour guide for today. Um, this first and uh, along the way, I learned a little bit about the Wu-Tang Clan. Our guide, Carice Luck Brimmer, pointed out a narrow residential street on a gently sloping hill. It was right here, she said, on Valley Street, that the famous hip-hop crew once asked their drivers to let them take a pit stop. So they're like, why do you want to go to Valley Street? So they brought them here and they get out of their limos and they get out on the street and they start kissing the ground. And they're looking at them like y'all are idiots. Like, don't you know you're walking on holy ground? You know, so that's- that holy ground was the childhood home of a black radical leader named Clarence X. His influential religious group, the Five Percenters, went on to inspire generations of hip hop artists like the Wu-Tang Clan. But of course, Danville's African-American history is much older than hip-hop. Soon, we leave the residential district to learn about the history of black business in the city. Okay, we're ready to turn on North Union Street. Reverend Campbell called this the black business mecca. In the early 1900s, it was the um, tobacco warehouse district, and then by the late 20s, it was known as the African-American Business District. You can see the first state bank, which closed two years ago, two years shy of its 100th anniversary. But it successful was... businesses are still no substitute for political equality. By the 1960s, the civil rights movement had taken off in Danville. The city's churches hosted important leaders and activists. And this is the site of the famous High Street Baptist Church. Martin Luther King spoke here, and when he met here at the church, there were snipers on the roof. Dr. King would later say that Danville's police department was one of the most vicious he'd ever seen. After a peaceful demonstration right here downtown, dozens of black protesters, including women and children, were beaten, hosed, and thrown in jail. So it happens that many demonstrations that I lead end up in violence in the sense that we who are demonstrated, uh, demonstrating rather, are inflicted with violence. Finally, our trolley stopped at the Danville Museum of History and Culture. There, we learned even more about Danville's civil rights history from someone who'd lived it. Right around 1960 was when sit-ins started in, in Greensboro. And this is Danville attorney Jerry Williams. He was only a teenager when the movement came to town, but he'd already been inspired by the young people who were making change across the border in North Carolina. So when he was only 14 years old, he became an activist himself. And so the local uh, NAACP, we decided that we were going to do some sit-ins, and we met and tried to figure out where we'd be most beneficial. And we selected the, the public library, which was here. Literally, uh, right here. The former segregated library is now the Danville Museum of History and Culture. We were all standing in the same room, where Williams had staged a sit-in 59 years earlier. But so we uh, sort of came and just walked in and, and sat down and just waited. Of course, there was widespread panic. Within minutes, the police arrived. And they um, kicked us out, told us to go out. And as a result of that, the library was shut down for six months to a year. Now, right so rather than letting black kids and teenagers use the public library, the city just closed it. Of course, that hurt white residents, too. So the city of Danville came up with a more subtle form of exclusion. And finally they realized that it was, it was an issue, and they opened the library back up. And what they had done is uh, taken all the seats out. So it was a library. It was open to the public, both black and white, but it had no seats. You couldn't sit. You could, you could borrow a book, and you had to take it with you, but you could not... Uh, you could not sit in the library, which is kind of foolish 
but that's that's the way it was uh, during those days. That's that's the way they they meaning the power structure, the the segregationists, the, the, the white supremacists. That's the way they did things. And that's their mindset at that time. And so, growing up, Williams learned a lot about that white supremacist mindset, but he also knew how to fight it. Williams's own father was also a lawyer, and the elder Williams helped out-of-town civil rights leaders stay in Danville. It was, everything was segregated, so there were no hotels that blacks could stay in. So whenever somebody came, they usually stayed with friends, family, or with, with people who would let them stay in their homes. So people like Thurgood Marshall used to stay with us. I remember he was there plenty of times for NAACP business. Thurgood Marshall made a particular impression on the young Williams, not just because of his civil rights leadership, but also because he introduced the teenager to some new vocabulary. Thurgood Marshall used to curse a lot. Every other word out of his mouth was and the other words. So my mother went to my father and said, that man can't come in my house. My mother thought he was corrupting her kids. But now young people today are learning from the example of Jerry Williams. I'm Ellen Cook. I'm a junior at Averett. I'm double majoring in equine-assisted psychotherapy. I've been at Averett all three years of my schooling. Cook is white, but she said that learning about Danville's African-American history helps her understand where she fits into the community, too, and inspires her to work for justice in the future. At the end of the day, no matter who you are, these events end up affecting who we are. I'm at Averett now, I'm in Danville now, and it was formed based off of those previous events. So I feel like we all have a, a need to be almost activists in ourselves, even if we're not a part of an organization. It's, it's almost our duty to remember and to know. From Danville, Virginia, I'm Cass Adair. That was producer Cass Adair in Danville. You're listening to I'm Free by Danville native Angela Mecca Scott. Earlier, you heard the song Night Shift by Danville artist Corduroy Cassette. And you heard the voices of Carice Luck Brimmer, Jerry Williams, and Ellen Cook. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. This episode originally aired in 2019. When we hear about the end of Jim Crow, we mostly hear about kids attending schools or about major court cases. But what did the process of legal desegregation look like in everyday life and culture? Jennifer Rittenhouse is a professor of history and art at George Mason University. She tells the story of Patty Boyle and her transformation from being a segregationist to becoming an ardent desegregationist in mid-20th century Virginia. What was her childhood like? I understand she grew up on a former plantation. She did. She grew up on a farm outside of Charlottesville. She was born in 1906, and there are African Americans who are both working on the farm and um, working as servants in the household. And her experiences to, you know, romp and play on the farm, have, you know, friendly relations with these people uh, who she sees as, as beloved adults until she hits age 12 and her parents uh, particularly her mother, very rigidly say, okay, you're a big girl now. You can't be overly familiar with black people. You have to act the role of an adult white woman and maintain social distance. Does she describe that she herself felt pretty oblivious to African-Americans or superior? She she did feel superior. She thought that she actually understood what they thought and that they understood her. She describes it as if 
you know, she and, you know, good Negroes would be a term she might have used, were all sort of part of the same club where, you know, they know that they have to abide by these rules of segregation, but really in their hearts, they're all good friends and everybody's getting along. And, you know, because she did believe in an inherent superiority and, and inferiority along race lines, she thought that that black people accepted all of this and were happy that nice white people were nice to them. And I think, you know, it just, it does end up helping us to understand how people can be so blind. What was the turning point for her? When did she start to question her own beliefs? She was reaching a point in her life in her late 40s in 1950 when her husband, who's a professor at at the University of Virginia, comes home and tells her that the first black student is about to be admitted to the university. So her first response was to ask around among her white friends, oh, how do you feel about this? Apparently, she says it was the, you know, his his coming admission was the topic of all private conversation and a <laughs> studiously avoided subject for all public gatherings. But she's asking around, hearing that, you know, a lot of the people she knows think it's a good thing. And so she writes to Gregory Swanson and says, you know, I just want to reach out to you to let you know that there are a lot of us white people here at the University of Virginia who, who are welcoming to you. And he's, he's very moved by this letter, and it opens a, a correspondence and then a, a face-to-face communication between them once he arrives in Charlottesville. But then that communication very quickly goes sour. When he says, oh, I'm looking forward to being friends, she says, well, I didn't really mean that we were going to have social equality between us. So he's absolutely offended by her at this point. Oh, totally offended, and she just doesn't understand what she's done wrong. She reached out to the editor of the Black newspaper in Charlottesville. Somebody she didn't even know. So when she first found out that Gregory Swanson was going to be living in Charlottesville, she's thinking, well, you know, I'm a person of goodwill. Maybe I can help him find a place to live. She finds out that he's already found a place to live through this man named T.J. Sellers, who's the editor of the Black newspaper, the Charlottesville Tribune. And she actually says this is the first time in her life that she has ever addressed a Black man as Mr., in conversation when she calls him on the phone. So she calls Mr. Sellers. Maybe he'd be willing to look over this draft article she's written that she's calling We Want a Negro at the UVA. So she asks Sellers to to read it over, give her a brutally frank critique, and so he does. Was it brutal? It was brutal. I mean... If you, you look at, at what she wrote, she says, in paragraph one, I had referred to slavery, a tactless habit of white Southerners with whom the mere sight of a Negro seemed to conjure up nostalgic recollections of those good old days. Uh, she says that she had clearly implied that Swanson, perhaps, you know, almost as a token, is welcome at the University of Virginia, but other African-Americans are not, that she had tried to whitewash the university by depicting the university as open-minded, open-hearted. It was only Virginia law that kept them from integrating. And then she quotes Sellers, his final statement. He apparently closed his letter saying, there is a new Negro in our midst who is insisting that America wake up and recognize the fact that he is a man like other men. He is entirely out of sympathy with the gross paternalism of the master class turned liberal. As she was advocating for public desegregation, did she desegregate her own life? She tried. Her relationships with other whites in Charlottesville became strained as she became a very public advocate for integration. Meanwhile, she did develop friendships among African Americans, but those weren't always the easiest uh, relationships to develop either because they were, you know, so unfamiliar and there were so many pitfalls of of behavior. So she, you know, she had to um, face some some real challenges on the interpersonal level herself. She took a stand in a very visible way. So in uh, 1955, as Virginia is starting to figure out what it's going to do in relation to the Brown decision and, you know, how are schools, how and when are schools going to become integrated, you know, she was one of very few white Virginians who, you know, very publicly at a set of um, state hearings said, you know, we need immediate integration. There is that certain honesty and persistence that she shows, and Martin Luther King recognized that. So in the letter from Birmingham jail in 1963, he criticizes white moderates for being, you know, too moderate, too gradualist, not willing to, to, you know, go the distance with the civil rights movement. And he gives a few exceptions, um, and Sarah Patton Boyle is one of those exceptions. 
part of what she explains is just how shaped people were, how hardened in their attitudes people were, attitudes and hearts by the Jim Crow era. Yeah. So as I look back on her story now from the point of view of 2019, I'm, I'm sort of back to the, the thing that initially drew me to it, which is, you know, in the, in the language of 2019, we all want to be woke, right? And she, she gives us a story about how somebody became woke and the work that it took to, to make that really real. She, she has wonderful metaphors, one of which I like is she talks about how, you know, back in the old days when women wore corsets, their backs would hurt if they left off their corsets. She says the, the patterns and the rules of behavior of the Jim Crow South are like those corsets that you, you can't leave off. Jennifer Ritterhouse is a professor of history and art history at George Mason University. She edited a new edition of Sarah Patton Boyle's autobiography, The Desegregated Heart, a Virginian stand in a time of transition. Next, how African-American communities maintain dignity and power during segregated Virginia. Dr. Jody Allen is a professor of history at the College of William and Mary. Her book is called Roses in December, Black Life in Hanover County, Virginia, During the Era of Disenfranchisement. Jody, were you surprised by how well people could live during those decades of repressive laws? I wasn't really surprised because growing up Black in Virginia, being raised by people who had to work very hard, who had worked against Jim Crow all of their lives, I knew what Black people were capable of. During slavery, you had whites who suggested that Blacks would not be able to survive without having a master and a mistress guide them. And one of the things I learned um, through this work in Hanover County is that they did indeed thrive. Do you think whites were surprised in that region when the Civil War ended that African Americans were doing okay on their own? I think they were. When Black men had the opportunity to vote for the delegates to the 1868 Constitutional Convention, only three Black men voted for the white delegates, and whites were very surprised by that. Can you give me a window into the lives of some of the Black residents of Hanover that you studied that show how they were able to sort of enjoy freedom, family, and work in spite of restrictions mm -hmm. like this? They understood what they wanted freedom to look like. They saw education as very important because they saw that as a way out, a way around the um, restrictions of Jim Crow. There was a, a, a man who owned a barbershop and he catered to white men, but at the same time, he also served the black community. He built a hotel for blacks who were traveling because there there weren't a lot of places for people to travel through Hanover and have a place a safe place to stay. Um, there was another black man um, who owned his own cleaning and pressing business. He also had white clientele, but he also started a marching band. And there was a section of the white newspaper called Our Colored Friends. Blacks were the people who actually filled this column. They describe these energetic young colored men of our town. And this was a time that they had marched through um, town at Thanksgiving in what were described as spotless uniforms. The writer indeed said, the best part of this band is that their uniforms and instruments are all paid for. You write that the same is true for these African-American families through the civil rights era that had been true back then, that they were seen as maybe quiet, not participating particularly in the marches and the sit-ins and the more public protests, mm -hmm. but they did carry their strength more quietly. Mm -hmm. 
It doesn't appear from my research that there were a, a lot of people who were active in the marches or what have you, although I did meet some who had participated in the March on Washington. Um, but they, they, their protest was, was daily. It was active. They accepted the idea that success was the best revenge. They built their own community. And while they did have to interact with whites, quite often they interacted with whites as business people. There was one business in particular, a bakery, and apparently everyone had him do their wedding cakes. And he was deceased by the time I was interviewing these people. But when they talked about Lightfoot's Bakery, black and white, they talk about just how delicious um, his bakery was. And so they were able to make use of the white community in many ways. When you decided to look into the lives of these people in Hanover County, you said it was largely because you're living there now mm -hmm. and you wanted to get to know them, but you also saw in them something familiar in your own family. Mm -hmm. I think just the the tenacity, the willingness to work hard, the understanding that there were limitations, but not allowing those limitations to control your lives. You know, I, I, I realize now as an adult that there were um, ladies in my church who every Sunday had on these beautiful outfits and what I call church lady hats, and they were just stunning. And it didn't occur to me at the time, but as an adult looking back, I know that most of these women were domestics. But I also know that most of them, as my, my own grandmothers, refused to wear their uniforms in public. You know, they would go to the house, change into a uniform, but before they got back to the bus stop, they had changed out of their uniforms. And, so, and there's a certain dignity in that to me. Um, and I found this to be true in Hanover, people who saw themselves, regardless of how they might have been perceived by white people, who saw themselves as dignified people. And they were making sure that the next generation could do better. Dr. Jody Allen is a professor of history at the College of William & Mary. Her book is Roses in December, Black life in Hanover County, Virginia, during the era of disenfranchisement. Camilla Williams was born in Danville in 1919. She was the first African-American to receive a regular contract with a major American opera company. In 1954, Camilla Williams became the first black artist to sing a major role with the Virginia State Opera, and she traveled the world as a recitalist. Camilla Williams is a good example of the process of how a diamond is created. You know, you have this piece of coal, and under pressure comes this brilliant diamond. Dr. Ethel Houghton is an associate professor of music at Virginia State University. That's where Camilla Williams graduated in 1941 with a degree in music. Dr. Houghton says Williams went on to take part in the civil rights movement back home, particularly in Danville. And her voice became part of civil rights history in 1963 when she was asked to sing at a massive protest for civil and economic rights of African Americans. She was scheduled to sing for the March on Washington in 1963. She was supposed to sing, Oh, What a Beautiful City. But at the last minute, she was called on to sing the national anthem. Um, Marian Anderson was scheduled to sing that, but she was stuck in traffic. And Camilla Williams said she heard her name called three times to, to sing the national anthem, and she ran up to the top of the stage, caught her breath, and, and sang. To present to you, to sing the national anthem, 
Miss Camilla Williams. Hey, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last screaming whose broad stripes and bright stars Camilla Williams died in 2012. Producer Kelly Libby brings us a story made from archival audio recordings of Williams and her performances. My story is a life story. My father worked for Dr. Robinson. He was a Jewish doctor. And he was a wonderful doctor. And you know, all my life, I have known beautiful china, beautiful silver, because when I would go to see them, I would see everything they had. And you know, that in itself is another culture. So I grew up seeing beautiful things. And I was a member of Calvary Baptist Church. And Reverend Good was a great preacher. And I joined church when I was nine years old so I could sing in the junior choir. And once Sunday morning in Sunday school, I shall never forget this as long as I live, I sang Come Unto Him, and Miss Cowan played for me. And after I finished singing, Reverend Good got up and said, Today we heard a voice that will be heard around the world. I will never forget that as long as I live. And it came to pass. I tell you, I went to Avery College with the high school to sing. And let me tell you, Miss Leah Lowe was the conductor of the choir And there had been a big lynching. And when we sang City Called Heaven, she put that picture in the front of the whole choir. So there were some good people. You know what I mean? People with hearts of gold that saw you. I I didn't know what really prejudice was in Danville because I was sort of a gifted child that the people took to. And those that didn't accept me as I was, Mama made me love folks just the same. You understand? Now let me tell you about Madame Butterfly. I had to learn that opera in two months. I had only seen one opera. And when I stepped on stage, I don't know anything that happened. I cannot tell you. It was as though I was not there. And I have traveled on every continent. I didn't get to Russia and India. But I can tell you there's no other country in the world like America. It, to me, is the best country that you can live in. But one lady my mama used to help. I was, had done Madame Butterfly and God was blessing me. 
And this lady said to mom, well, Fanny, you know, Camilla always knew her place. And mama said, well, what was the place? I had all kinds of things thrown at me, but it did not disturbed my thinking of what my mama taught me. I grew up knowing that people can be real human beings, no matter what your color is. And so I grew up with love. It hasn't been an easy life to withstand some of the blocks that have been put in your past because you either overcome them. And when you get your mind set right, you can endure everything that people throw at you. If you have faith in God and faith in yourself, you can survive. My life is a miracle. Special thanks to the Friends of Camilla Williams in Danville, Virginia, who provided our producer with the oral history recording you just heard, and to Chad Martin of History United. The show was produced in partnership with History United, a project of Virginia Humanities that encourages regional cooperation and building community trust through greater understanding of shared history. History United's work is made possible by a grant from the Danville Regional Foundation. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.